As a church, we conclude our uh, study in the book of Hebrews, which is all about Jesus. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. That's Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. We'll have it up on the screen here in a minute, so don't worry. If you'd like a Bible uh, and don't have one with you, you can grab one off the tables in the back. Of course, you could use your digital device, and we'll be using and reading from the English Standard Version. Hebrews 9. As you guys are turning there, I want to encourage you to join us next week for Easter. We've got uh, services at 8, 9, 30, and 11. Real quick, if you've got little ones, we will not be having our normal Adventure Kids uh, programming at 8 o'clock, but we will at 9, 30, and 11. Encourage you uh, to join us for that. And I also, uh, if you want to invite friends, uh, family, or enemies, you can grab some of these postcards. They're on the right when you go through these doors out in the lobby. They're on a table in the back. Grab as many as you want. Uh, hand them out to friends, family, frenemies, whatever you got. Also, uh, during Holy Week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of this week, uh, here uh, on this property in this uh, facility here, um, we are hosting our Journey to the Cross, and so we'll do that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Wednesday will be a family, uh, a kid-friendly night, and so the music and some of the aesthetics will be uh, built for uh, where it's friendly for kids 10 and under. If you have kids 10 and under, I would encourage you, join us on Wednesday. Uh, Thursday and Friday, you are free to bring your kids, but Thursday and Friday, it'll be a little bit more intense. Uh, the lighting and the, the, uh, the audio will be a little more intense. This is an interactive walk through the stations of the cross, and so uh, our campus will be converted. We've got a bunch of people starting actually tonight to set that up, so huge thanks to the volunteers who are, are going to be working on that. I'd encourage you to do that as we gear up for Easter. Uh, a little uh, heads up. I am absolutely going to trample on all of our modern sensibilities today. I I guarantee you that there's going to be things that I say, uh, because the text says it, that are going to absolutely come into direct conflict with our modern sensibilities. Uh, As I was preparing for uh, today's sermon, as I was reading the text, and I get paid to do this, I'm like, oh... I don't know about that. Uh, and so I just want to say, uh, if I, uh, when I begin to uh, trample on your sensibilities, I would ask two things of you. Number one, stick with me till the end. Number two, uh, beware of chronological snobbery. Beware of chronological snobbery. Believing that our current cultural moment thinks rightly about all things is chronological snobbery. There are things that we believe and hold to as a culture that our grandchildren will be radically embarrassed about. The problem is we do not know what those things are because we are stuck in our time and our culture. As we look back on ancient cultures, the temptation is to think of ourselves more than we ought to think. We become chronological snobs, thinking that our sensibilities are the right sensibilities. And I just want to ask, can you today recognize that you are here in a current cultural moment, and some of the reasons that our sensibilities will be trampled on today is because we, unlike the majority of all cultures, are individualistic. Here we go. There is... Uh, To understand Hebrews 9, I'm going to read it here in a moment. To understand Hebrews 9, we have to go back. 
We have to go back to the books of Leviticus, Exodus, and Genesis. Those are the uh, first three books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We're going to do them in reverse order. I'm going to read the text. We're all going to be confused. I'm going to do my best to help us understand. And by the way, don't let me forget, as soon as I'm done reading the text, I want to give you the most important key to understanding the universe, okay? I need you to not let me forget. So as soon as we're done, I'm going to say, thus saith the Lord, and someone needs to say, don't forget about that one key that's gonna help us unlock all the mysteries of the universe, okay? We make that covenant together, here we go. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, TV time out, did I tell you that this was weird? The, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, you guys wanna sing yet? Ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more Here we go. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. I've got the key. Are you ready? The key to understanding the gospel, the key to understanding your life, the key to understanding the cosmos is lamb chops. Now, I raided my two-year-old's room this morning and found the key to understanding the nature of the cosmos and our place in it. It's a bad pun, isn't it? We'll get back to that in a moment. One of the key threads, as we talk about thread lines, that runs through the scriptures is the lamb. And it's super confusing. I mean, just a minute ago, we sang like four songs, most of which had words like, the blood of the, or blessed is the lamb, or worthy is the lamb. Why are we talking about lambs? I'm glad you asked. Here in Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 14, we get this uh, radically deep, and profound thread line. We come across it, it's the thread of the lamb. And to understand Hebrews 9, we first have to understand Leviticus 16. You can turn there if you'd like, I'm not gonna generally quote from that, but it's all there, Leviticus 16. And what would happen was you would have in Leviticus 16 a sacrificial system, a system of sacrifices that was meant to show us people something. And people would walk up to the temple. They would walk animals up to the temple, animals like bulls, goats, sheep, deer. And remember the stomping on our sensibilities thing? Here we go. What they would do with those animals is they would bring them up, they would walk them up to the temple, and they would slaughter the animal, and the blood of the animal would pour out from the animal as a means of making atonement for the people. To put it another way, a means of making amends with God. And instantaneously, all of us say that's primitive. That's primitive. 
that's unnecessary, and that's, that, that, that stomps all over my sensibilities. Yeah, me too. So what are we talking about here? Here we go. They would take these animals, and the system of sacrifice that God showed to his people was to show them that there is consequence for sin. That sin, rebellion against God, making ourselves God, doing the very thing that Adam and Eve did, namely putting ourselves in the position of God, that there are consequences for sin, that sin creates a rift between us and our creator. Sin very, uh, very poignantly adds, here we go, our sin adds to the destructive force in the universe. You see, we often, as individualists, we think that my personal sin is just my personal deal, and it's all about me. But what God has shown us through the sacrificial system, one of the very real things that he has shown us is that when I sin, it adds to the destructive force in the universe. When I sin, it hurts you. You who are made in the image and likeness of God. You who are loved by God. You who are the crowning glory of all creation, when I sin, it hurts you. My greed, my unchecked aggression and rage, my lust, my self-centered tendencies hurt you. They hurt the people closest to me. They hurt my children. They hurt my wife, and they hurt you. And by the way, your sin hurts me too. It creates a rift in the relationship. It adds to the destructive forces of the universe. But number two, sin hurts me. My sin hurts me. I'm created in the image of God. God loves me. And when I choose to rebel and sin against God, it bends my heart away from God and in towards myself. Like an addict looking for their next fix, which I know many of us wrestle with, so you'll know this when you see it. Like an addict looking for the next fix, so too my heart bends in on itself. It becomes corrupted in on itself so that relationships begin to falter. So that my view of the whole universe is all about me. I'm addicted to myself. Sin, when we sin, it hurts others and it hurts ourselves. And God cares about us, doesn't he? God loves us. And so our sin matters to God. Therefore, God's wrath burns against sin. So you all be thinking like we're not going to do that fire and brimstone stuff. Hold on. God's wrath burns against sin because he is totally loving and just. He is totally loving and totally just. J.I. Packer, a British theologian, says this, that God's wrath is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble, like that of human wrath and anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. There are many of us who are kicking against this. Oh my goodness, we do, not, we, want to, we do not want to hear about the justice and wrath of God. We don't want to hear it. We say things like, I prefer to think of God as a God of love, not a God of wrath. 
And if you would just pardon me for a minute, I want to lean into that a bit and tell you that if you say that God has no justice and wrath, the God you believe in is actually unloving. Prove it to you. I'll try at least. Have you ever been wronged? I mean really wronged. Imagine that you've been really, really wronged. And you go before a judge and the, you, you play out, your, you lay out your case before that judge. And you say, judge, I know you're a judge of love. Make this wrong right. This person has hurt me. This person has wronged me. They've, they, they've done me dirty. They, they've hurt me. And the judge of love says, doesn't matter to me. I'm just a God of love. Is that an actual God of love? When you go before a judge, when you have been wronged, what do you crave most of all? Come on, come on. You want justice, right? I want justice. When you wrong me, the one thing that I want most is vengeance, baby. I mean, I want it, I want it to be like diehard vengeance, right? Like I want Bruce Willis to swing into their office complex and take them out. I got no time for fines. I want vengeance, but when I am the wrongdoer, what do I crave most of all? I crave mercy. How then do we find justice and mercy come together? How is it that we find both of, both of those things? You see, God is totally loving, and therefore, therefore, he's totally ultimately, unflinchingly just. Which is good news for the victim and horrifying for the wrongdoer, of which, by the way, we all are. Romans 3. It's a book in the Bible. It's called Romans, written by a dude named Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God. It says this. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned. Who's under the umbrella of all? Right? Like, who's got two thumbs and fits under the umbrella of all? This guy, right? Who fits under the umbrella of all? Yeah. Yeah. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Oh, boy, here we go. And so because of God's love, he is also ultimately and absolutely just. I also want to lean into this. Without a just God, you cannot find peace on earth. Without a just God, without a God whose wrath and fury burns against sin and evil, without a God of wrath, you cannot find peace on earth. You remember Christmas? You guys, some of us were here, right? Remember Christmas? And we say, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, right? It's the song we sing. You can't have peace on earth without a God who bears the sword. Miroslav Volf, who... Um, it's Croatian, the Serbian-Croatian conflict. Uh, he was well-versed in, experienced some of that violence. This is what Miroslav Volf is. I think he's at Princeton or Yale. I don't know the difference between those two, people, uh, those two places, so <laughs> he says this. Check this out. This is fascinating to me. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief 
and divine vengeance. Imagine speaking to a group of people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers had their throats slit. You point to them and you say, they say, should we retaliate? No, why not? What are you gonna say to them when they say, should I pick up the sword and retaliate? No, be at peace, why? Good question. Wolf says this, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. I want vengeance when I'm wronged, don't I? And when someone tells me, no, forgive, be at peace, why should I not find vengeance for myself? Well, if God is simply all loving, and by that I mean not actually loving, but if God is like that old grandpa in the sky who just hands out Werther's originals, if God does not rage in fire and fury against evil, then I have no reason to wait on the Lord for his vengeance. I'll just get it myself. It takes the quiet, he goes on, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the idea that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked by the blood of the innocent, this idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. God has shown us in the sacrificial system and the slaying of animals that sin has consequences and that his fire and rage burn against sin, but he has not left us without hope. In love, God has shown us that his divine justice and wrath burns against sin, but in Exodus 12, he shows us that it doesn't need to be us that we do not need to be the objects of his wrath, rather there can be a substitute. Well before the temple, and the animal sacrifices that you find there, the people of God were slaves in Egypt. Do you remember when Charlton Heston led the people out of Egypt? Oh, it was Moses, that's right, I get those two confused. Charlton Heston played Moses in a movie about this very thing. They were slaves in Egypt. And Pharaoh would not let the people of God go. And so the last plague that was given to Egypt was Judgment Day. It was the cup of God's wrath in sample version. He said, the destroyer, I'm gonna send the destroyer. God says to the people, I'm gonna send the destroyer into your land and no one will be spared. Egyptian, slave, it doesn't matter. No one will be spared. The firstborn son, when the destroyer comes in, the firstborn son will be slain, except or unless you take the blood of a lamb and you slay the lamb and you take its blood and you put it over your doorpost and when Judgment day comes when the cup of God's wrath is poured out in sample version, in sample form. I will pass over that house. In every house that night, 
There was either a dead son or a dead lamb. That first Passover night. What God showed his people and is showing us is that we need not be the one who takes on the full wrath of God. If we are under the blood of the lamb, then it will serve as our substitute. It will drink the cup of God's wrath instead of us. And so they, that night, walked the lamb in. And they killed the lamb, and they took its blood and put it over the door. And this is celebrated to this day in a celebration or a holiday called Passover because it remembers the time when God passed over the houses of those who were under the blood of the lamb. Y'all with me? And so in love, God showed us through the sacrificial system that he demands justice, that there's consequence for sin, but in his love, he showed us that a substitute could take our place, could die in our place. But here's a question I have for you. Do you, honest to God, do you think that the blood of a furry quadruped satisfies the wrath of God? Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, if my sin actually has, creates a rift in the universe, if it adds to the destructive forces of the cosmos, if my sin hurts God's creation, it hurts people, including me, then the blood of a lamb, come on, what are we even talking about here? I mean, that can't do it. That can't can't get it done. It's got to take something more than lamb chops, for this relationship between me and God to be made right. God has shown us in his love that a sacrificial, through the sacrificial system that he demands justice and that it is out of love that he demands justice. Two, he has shown us in the story of the Passover that a substitute can take our place. But third, in Genesis 22, he shows us in a prototypical fashion that it is our life, the life of a person is required to satisfy the wrath of God. Remember the trampling on sensibilities? It's gonna get even worse. In Genesis 22, God had promised to this dude named Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. And I'm gonna give you a son, a son of promise. And then that son is born, his name is Isaac. And Isaac grows up, maybe he's a preteen in age. And God says to Abraham, here we go, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your one and only son. And I want you to sacrifice him on an altar. And what's fascinating is this, is that Abraham, though he was overwhelmed with sadness, did not question, check this, did not question the goodness of God. Abraham instead recognized that he had sinned and that God demands a life to make things right. He did not question the justice of God when God called him to sacrifice his only son. Now many of us are frustrated right now, many of us are are, are just enraged, how could God do that? Hold on, you have to read Genesis 22 in light of the whole text. And so Abraham takes his son, and if you read the Genesis account, which I would strongly encourage you to do, Genesis 22, the word son and my only son is repeated over and over and over again, where you're walking up with Abraham up the mountain with Isaac, and he is devastated. My one, my only son. 
and he lays him, he takes him up the hill, and he's about ready to lay him on the altar. And as they're walking up the hill, as they're walking up the mountain, a place called Mount Moriah, as they're walking up the mountain, Isaac, I think, knows what's going on because he says, Dad, here we've got the fire, here we've got the wood, here we've got the knife, but where is the Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says this, God will for himself provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb, Isaac, okay? So they go up and they take, and Isaac is literally laying on the altar and Abraham is ready to go. And an angel of the Lord appears and says, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you would not keep your only son, your one and only son from me. I see that you love me, I know that you love me. And so instead of Isaac, Isaac gets off the altar and a ram is caught in the thicket. And so Abraham takes the ram, lays it on the altar, slays it. And Abraham is not questioning God's divine judgment. He recognizes that it's life for sin. But here's what's interesting, is that question never gets answered. That question, where is the lamb that will die in my place, that question haunts us to this day. It echoes through the corridors of time because God did not there in Genesis 2 provide a lamb. And so we ask the question that Isaac asked. I am going to die apart from an act of God. He demands my life for my sin because I have added to the destructive forces of the universe. I have rebelled against my God and he demands my life's blood. But he's told me that there can be a substitute but the lamb isn't working, and so where is the lamb? And one day, years later, the Son of God marched into Jerusalem, which, by the way, Mount Moriah, many believe that's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Jesus, like Isaac, marched into the city. We celebrate it as Palm Sunday today. And just like the lamb would be marched in to the temple, the lamb would be marched into the home, so too Jesus, the Son of God, is marched into the city. And days later, he is taken out of the city, bound, flogged, beaten, abused, betrayed, scoffed, mocked, As a lamb led to the slaughter, so too Jesus is. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming at him in John chapter one, he says this, behold the, John the Baptist could have called Jesus anything he wanted to. He said, behold the king of the cosmos, behold the savior of the universe. He sees Jesus and the first thing he says is, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. You see, Jesus answers the question that Isaac asked. Where is the lamb? In love, God has shown us through his sacrificial system that justice is demanded, but two, he has shown us in his mercy in the Passover that a substitute can die in our place. 
Genesis 22 says that it is the son who must die, and yet the son shows up many years later, and he's called the Lamb of God. And listen, Jesus, the night when Jesus was betrayed, he was eating a meal with his disciples. You're never even going to guess what that meal was. It was called the Passover, which was a time of remembering when God looked at the blood of the lamb and passed over in grace that house. And when we take communion or Eucharist or Lord's table or Lord's supper, depending on what you call it, we have the same elements that were there at that Passover meal. We take the bread and we break. And by the way, during Journey to the Cross, we're gonna do this together. I'd encourage you to come back and experience that Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Jesus took the bread and he said, take and eat. This is my body. Now what's interesting is that There would be a presider over every Passover meal, and here is Jesus presiding over this meal, a meal remembering that the blood of the lamb would bring us salvation. And he takes the bread, and he gives it to his disciples, and he says, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And then he takes the cup, very common occurrence in Passover meals, and he says, this is my blood. He realigns the Passover to a degree to look now at him. But here's what's interesting. When we celebrate communion, when we take of Lord's table, what are the two key elements that we consume? You tell me. Bread and wine or juice because of our post-prohibition sensibilities. Do you eat a lamb at Lord's table? During communion, do we serve lamb? See, at Passover, you served lamb. You would not have a Passover feast without a lamb. And yet at Lord's table, we do not take a lamb. Why? Because the lamb wasn't on the table. The lamb was at the table. Where is the lamb? Have you done business with that question? Where are you at with your God? Do you recognize that even according to your own standards, we cannot stand on judgment day? Do you know the goodness and mercy of the Lord that is only available to us if we but believe that he gave his life for us? John 3.16 says this. For, remember Abraham and Isaac? You guys remember that? John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the you and me and everyone that he gave his son, his only Son, his one and only son. You remember Abraham and Isaac marching up the mountain, his son, his one and only son, that John 3, 16, that he gave his one and only son, the lamb, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Perish at whose hand? The wrath of God shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know what it is to taste life and life abundant? All who are under the blood will be saved, made new, redeemed, and adopted. My question to you is this, do you believe? There are many of us here today who are still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. Let me give you this, that the one central thing to get about Jesus is that he is God in the flesh and he has died in your place to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath so you do not have to. Do you believe? There are many things confusing about Christianity. I'll be the first one to tell you. 
But there is one very clear central tenet of Christianity. The one primary key thing that Jesus is calling us to see is that he has given his life for you and for me. Do you believe? There is no magic formula. There is no club to join. You don't need to get the newsletter. You just believe. The scripture says Jesus came saying, repent, turn from your sin, and believe in the gospel. I would encourage you to do that today. There are many of you here today who follow after Jesus. Believe in the gospel. Cling to it. I'm gonna pray for us. While we pray, we're gonna pray, and then we're gonna enter into a time of reflection. As Danny comes out and sings for us, I would encourage you during this time of reflection to ask yourself the question, do I believe? And if you do believe, I would encourage you to ask this question, what does that mean now for me? What is God speaking to me now? 